Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzi, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news, or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us, as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. And if you would, with me, take your copy of God's Word and turn to the book of Acts. Book of Acts chapter 8 this morning. And as we make our way through the book of Acts, we've had this truth put before us that at the very beginning, even though Christ is alive, even though Christ has ascended into heaven, even though Christ is seated at the right hand of the heavenly Father, that Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, is continuing to act. He's continuing to work in people's lives. He's continuing to do things in the church. And so would our prayer be that our risen Lord would continue to act and work in us and in this church. And that we would be expectant, waiting, ready for Him to work and act. What are you expecting this morning? I hope with me that we together will expect God to do great things, things far better than we could ever imagine. Let's stand together this morning as we read from the book of Acts chapter 8. I'm going to begin in verse 4 and read through verse 25, and as I finish, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and together we will say, thanks be to God. Because we're truly thankful. Let's listen to God's word. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip 
when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, "'Give me this power also.'" That so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we need your word this morning. We ask for your assistance to help us understand it. I pray this morning that you would provide for me the physical strength and the spiritual energy that I need to preach the word with faithfulness, with clarity, with authority, with passion wisdom, humility, and liberty. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. 
I swiped the card once. I swiped it twice. I swiped it a third time, just for good measure. But each time, the same word (laughs) popped up on that screen in front of me. Denied. There can be nothing more frustrating and sometimes worrying than when you try to use your credit card and something goes awry. There I stood at this gas pump, wondering why my card was not working and why I was being denied. We had just used it. All of a sudden, it stopped working. So we called up the credit card company, asked them what was going on. We had just made a few purchases that they thought looked suspicious. They thought looked fraudulent. So they had put a temporary hold on our card, and we said, no, that was us. We did it. But they said, okay. Once we confirmed that we had made those purchases, our card worked again as it once had. Others, though, have had to experience the other side of that scenario where someone has gotten a hold of their card or a hold of their information and used it to make purchases. These were not purchases authorized or performed by the cardholder, but they used that information. And then they have to go through the headache of trying to untangle all of the confusion about who used the credit card when and what purchases were made and trying to correct everything with the credit card company or the banking institution. What happens when that takes place? The one who stole the information and uses it illegally reaps all of the benefits of someone's good credit. They reap all the benefits of someone else's money. But what's the problem? It's not their credit. It's not their money. It's not their bank account. They have done nothing to contribute to all of those benefits that they reap. Would we ever run up against this in the church? Would something like this ever happen in Christianity? I'm not talking about fraudulent purchases. I'm talking about fraudulent or fake Christians. The fraudulent Christian wants to reap all of the benefits of Christianity, but is unwilling to give up their self-proclaimed power, greatness, or sinful life in order to truly follow Christ. The call of Christ to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me has fallen on deaf ears. Ears that can't hear, ears that perhaps do not want to hear those words. What's amazing is that this idea of fraudulent or fake Christians is nothing new. It's been around for centuries. The church has experienced this for a long time, even since it, since it began. And so, as we look at the text this morning, we see that it teaches us to be on the lookout, to be discerning, because there are those who are a part of the true people of God, and then there are the fake, fraudulent people. 
And so out of this text this morning, I want us to look at four positive distinctions of what it means to be God's true people. And even as we look at these positive distinctions, some of these come in contrast to someone who is one bad apple. One man who is known as the first heretic, and as the early fathers, church fathers, testify, he went on to cause much damage and destruction in the church. This is why we need to know the difference between the true and the fake, because the fraudulent Christian can wreak havoc on the church. And maybe we would even use it to examine our own lives this morning in light of this warning. So, number one, God's true people are arrested by a powerful message. God's true people are arrested by a powerful message. I am told by the Microsoft Corporation who did a study in the year 2015 that our attention span in the West has been on the decline. It's been dropping significantly. In fact, they did a study, and they looked back at the year 2000, and they said at 2000, average attention span of someone in the West, someone in our culture, was 12 seconds. Now, that might sound pretty bad. In fact, 12 seconds, I've already lost you. But that was the year 2000. They did the same study in 2015, and they found that doing that same study, that now the average attention span, our average attention span, was eight seconds. And to make matters even worse, eight seconds is less than the attention span of the average goldfish, which is said to be nine seconds. Now, I don't know how you test the attention span of a goldfish. I'll leave that to the experts. But has there ever been something that has captured your attention, something that drew you in, something that was so magnificent that you had to pay attention to it? You could not take yourself away from it because it was completely different, something unlike anything that you have ever known before. And could it be that the gospel could do that to people? We've seen here that the church in Acts 8 already has been persecuted in Jerusalem. And as the church was persecuted in Jerusalem, most of the believers leave Jerusalem. It says they leave except the apostles. The apostles are left there, but all of the other believers are scattered. They're having to leave Jerusalem because of this persecution, and instead of dampening the gospel message, the persecution of the church actually fuels the gospel message. The persecution hasn't extinguished the fire, but rather it's thrown gasoline on the fire and caused a wind to blow over the fire so that it has begun to spread everywhere. And notice At the very beginning of our text this morning, in verse 4, 
And those, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. These are ordinary Christians who are being scattered, and it is these ordinary Christians who are preaching the word. It is the ordinary Christian who is preaching the gospel. This is how the mission is going forward in the book of Acts. It's going forward by the word of God. And it's the same way the mission continues to go forward today, by the word of God and by the preaching of the gospel. And by the preaching of the gospel by ordinary, average Christians. I find that so simple. We don't need to complicate it. How many times do we hear that the Word of God is left behind or ignored? And how much confusion is out there about what the gospel really is. It must not be so for us. The gospel must be spread by you. We're drawn in this text here to one particular person who is preaching the word, a man named Philip. We've already briefly been introduced to Philip in Acts 6, where it's noted that he is full of the Spirit, full of wisdom. He was selected as one of the seven to serve some widows in the church. But now, because of the persecution, he is one of the ones who's gone out, who's been scattered. And I'm fascinated by where Philip goes. Philip goes to the city of Samaria, which is north of Jerusalem. It's in the region that's called of that same name, Samaria. And that's where he proclaims the Christ. In order to understand just how important this is, we have to understand, understand who the Samaritans are. The Samaritans were considered by the Jews to be half-breeds. They were considered unclean. They were the worst of the worst in the Jewish minds. In fact, if you were a Jew and you had to go from the south of Israel to the north of Israel, instead of walking through the region of Samaria, you would go around the region of Samaria, lest you become unclean, lest you have to interact with these people. But this is exactly who Philip goes to. He goes to the Samaritans. Samaritans were a different kind of people. They didn't accept all of the Old Testament. In fact, they only read the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't go to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. They had made their own temple in their own land on Mount Gerizim. But they still had this idea of a coming Messiah. They still were waiting for this Christ to come. And now here is Philip coming to people who would be last on your list to go to. But that's exactly where Philip went and he proclaimed to them the Christ, the true Messiah. He told them that the one who they had been waiting for 
had come. And maybe, maybe Philip even reminded them that Christ, Jesus Christ himself, had been among them, had been with their people. Do you remember that in John 4? Jesus is there at a well, and he has an interaction with a Samaritan woman. And he proclaims the gospel to her and says, now is the time to worship God in spirit and in truth. And the one that you've been waiting for, the Messiah, has come, and I am He. And then many Samaritans come, and they, they hear the message of the gospel and are saved. So now, here is Philip reminding them of one who had been already among them. And Philip proclaimed the gospel. And at the very center of the gospel message is Christ Jesus. And something happened when Philip proclaimed this message The Samaritans' minds were arrested by this message. They were captivated by what Philip had to say. And notice what it says there. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. And I think there's a correlation here between what's said in verse 6, they paid attention to what was being said by Philip, and then what happens in verse 10. Verse 10, we're told that the Samaritans used to pay attention to someone else. They used to pay attention to someone named Simon, Simon the magician. He had once held their attention because of the magic that he was doing. But now this is something different. This was Philip's message It's what he said that captured them. And it's with this message that came this validation of the message, these powerful signs of casting out demons and healing the lame. We've already seen signs like this happen in the book of Acts with Peter, with Stephen, and now we see them with Philip. And the nature of these signs are to point to the validity of the message and the truthfulness of the gospel that they were proclaiming. The people were not enamored by the signs alone, but the signs were pointing to the truthfulness, the veracity, the validity of the message of the gospel. And the signs were far better than any kind of magic that Simon could have ever done. Why? Because lives were completely changed by this message and by these signs. Lives were completely transformed. Philip was telling people how they could be saved by Jesus Christ. And the signs were a demonstration of deliverance that Jesus Christ provided to bring life into people's life. This is the powerful message that arrests people. It is the powerful message of how Jesus can make you right with God through his death and resurrection. It's how you can be Saved and forgiven of your sin. It's how you have been given new life in Christ. How you can be released from the power of sin and the curse of death and walk in the newness of life. It's the message of how God saves sinners through His Son and delivers them from the wrath to come. It is this powerful message that comes to the heart and arrests us so that we who are God's true people cannot look away from it. Our attention has been completely and utterly drawn to it. And why does it arrest our attention? For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God 
for salvation to everyone who believes. Because the gospel is the power of God. It's power like you've never seen, never experienced before. It's the power of God that arrests our attention. And what's the result of this arresting effect of this powerful message of the gospel? What does it say there in verse 8? So there was much joy in that city. There was much joy in that city because of this message. Is this what we've known? Is this what we've seen? You want to know the basic distinction between what it means to be a Christian and a non-Christian. What do you look for? Do you look for godly decisions? Do you look for good deeds? Do you look for a grasp on doctrine? The most basic and fundamental distinction between a Christian and a non-Christian is a delight in the heart. It's a joy that's there that nothing else can put there. It's an overwhelming gladness because of the good news of the gospel that now you who once had no way to get to God now are brought to God through His Son, Jesus Christ. And this is the good news, the best news, the most powerful news that you can hear. And it's so amazing and so powerful that joy wells up in your hearts and floods out to everybody around you. This morning... Whether you know it or not, you're holding on to some form of what you believe to be good news. But if that good news that you believe, if that in any way leaves you in control, if that any way makes you the determiner of getting to God, that is not good news. You need to have the real good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ because that is the only message that saves. You need to hear that the gospel is not a joy killer. The world says the gospel, you want to end joy, you want to kill your joy, believe that message. But no, we say the gospel is what really gives us joy and nothing can ever take away that joy. It is the greatest, most enduring, most satisfying joy that we can ever have. So, let's not lie. A joyless Christian is not a Christian. Is joy what people see in your life? Is a delight in the heart what people see from your life? Because this joy transcends your circumstances. This joy transcends whatever's going on in your life, whatever is difficult and hard and has you down in the dumps. This joy is better than all of that. And that's the joy that I want to know. And I hope that's the joy that you know. Number two, God's true people are identified with the greatest person. 
God's true people are identified with the greatest person. I believe that there is something in mankind where we like to tell ourselves, I want to be somebody. I want to make a difference. I want to do something great. I want to be recognized. (laughs) And not only do we tell that to ourselves, we tell that to our children. I mean, watch children's television for five minutes, and you'll hear that. I hear a lot of that in my house. (laughs) In some ways, then, we can identify with this man named Simon in our text. (laughs) He was telling the people, I'm somebody great. I'm going to be somebody. This Simon is known as a magician. He practiced black magic or was a part of the occult. And really, his platform was deception. He was a deceiver of the people. But his deceptions amazed the people. It caught their attention. And one of those deceptions was that message. He told them that he was somebody great. Pay attention to me. Look at what I can do. You've never seen anything like this before. And you've, you've never seen someone who can do the things that I can do before. It's a side note this morning. Watch out for someone who has to tell you how great they are. Simon had captivated the people for a long time with his magic. Not not only did it give him a massive ego, he was put on a pedestal by other people who said that he had the power of God. These people were elevating him to the level of divinity. That's how great that they thought of him. It was a great with a capital G. But now we see something amazing happen. We see the amazing Simon becomes no longer amazing. The one who was held up as great is no longer great. Why? Because the people now believed in someone greater. They put their faith in the one who is the greatest. There is no one greater to believe in. They were searching for that great one to follow, and that searching came to an end when they heard the message of the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. This particularly was good news to the Samaritans because the Jews had been telling the Samaritans, there is no way that you can ever get into the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is reserved for God's true people. And the Jews would have said to the Samaritan, you have no part in that kingdom. They would never have a part because they were considered to be half-breeds. They were tainted, they were unclean, and that has no place in God's kingdom or to be a part of God's people. But Philip teaches the good news which says that they could come into the kingdom of God that they could be God's true people, but that the only way that that happens is through Jesus Christ. It was the name of Christ they had to trust and believe in so that they could be a part of God's kingdom. 
it was not their ethnic identity that would get them to God. It was their union with Christ that they put their faith in His person and in His work. And God was leading these people out of darkness which surrounded them as they followed Simon. God was leading them out of this darkness and He was leading them into the kingdom of His beloved Son. This is what Colossians 1, 13-14 says. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. It was on account of this great one, Jesus Christ, that the people who believed then went on to be baptized. These people wanted to be identified with Christ. They wanted to make a public profession of their faith in Jesus Christ. And notice how it happens here, because we see this not only as we go forth in the book of Acts, but we see this in the New Testament. How does this happen? First, they believe the gospel. First, they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And then, what follows after faith? What followed after believing? Then, they were baptized. It was a sign, a symbol of what had already taken place within them. Romans 6, 4 said, We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so they were obedient unto baptism after they believed. It was normal. It was the next step. And it is the normal step we see over and over and over again in the New Testament. We need to be careful here, though, however, because while there were many who truly believed and were baptized, I think we're also given a warning about Simon. It says Simon, too, believed and was baptized and followed Philip around. And in a moment, we'll get a glimpse of Simon's heart. And what we see there is that it's possible to have an insincere faith. It's possible even to be baptized but not be saved. We're given a small glimpse of this with Simon because we see here immediately after that, what was it that Simon was enamored with? What was it that amazed Simon? He's not amazed with the greatest person. He's more amazed with the signs and great miracles that were performed. He was focused, mesmerized, amazed by all of the wrong things. All those things that were supposed to point him to Christ... Those were the things that he held up to be the most important. How many people want some amazing experience? They want to see something supernatural, inspiring. They want to be entertained by some great power. What is it that amazes you this morning? Does it amaze you that you can have access into the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ? Is it the greatness of Christ that amazes you? Is it His death and resurrection that you've identified with, saying that my life is now completely and forever devoted to Christ? I am a follower of His. He is my Savior, and upon Him alone do I depend. Is it this Jesus who you have identified with? 
Or are you amazed, distracted by other things? Or maybe it's this still. You want to be someone great rather than bow the knee to the one who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's time to wake up and see that there's no one greater. There is salvation in no other name. No one, nothing can hold the candle to King Jesus. He is the greatest one. Number three, God's true people are identified, or excuse me, God's true people are unified by the gift of the Spirit. God's true people are unified by the gift of the Spirit. One of the difficulties in reading through the book of Acts is determining what we should hold as normative for the church today. What is it that's normal for us to see in the church? Acts is happening in this transitional period of history with this birth of the church that is taking place and this building up of the early church. We're seeing this spirit-empowered mission going forth and expanding as Jesus has commanded. It began in Jerusalem. It's now expanding to Judea and Samaria. And it's at this point in our text that we see something unusual happen. In some ways, we see this happen later on in the book of Acts when we get to Acts chapter 10. But in another way, this event is unique. We see the apostles who had remained at Jerusalem... They heard that Samaria had received the word of God, and so they sent Peter and John, these representatives, to Samaria. And then it tells us why here in verse 15 and 16. They went down that they might receive the Holy Spirit because he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus The Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on these people. They had been baptized, but they had not yet received the Spirit. And this is different because at other times in the New Testament, we see people believe and receive the Holy Spirit right then and there. But what's different here is that there's a waiting period. They believe, and then there's this waiting period, and then Peter and John come, and they lay their hands on them, and then they receive the Holy Spirit. The apostles' role in this event is important because they were the first to receive the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And it came with a visible manifestation to authenticate their faith in Jesus Christ. And so, too, here now, the apostles come, they lay their hands on the Samaritans, and when they do, they receive the Holy Spirit it says this, these Samaritans are a part of the true covenant community. These people are a part of the true people of God. They have the same spirit the Jews have. They have the same faith. This is the same church. They were not to have some spin-off church 
like there's one church for the Jews and there's another church for the Samaritans. No, what's happening is this dividing wall of hostility that separated the Jews and Samaritans has been torn down in the person and work of Christ. And so now the apostles are coming and laying their hands on them and saying, yes, these people are the true people of God. They're not second-class Christians. They're not second-rate Christians. No, they received everything that any Christian has. The benefits that they received were the same benefits, and the benefits were great. And they received the benefit of the Holy Spirit. We see the benefit that we have of the indwelling Spirit in our lives. That that's a gift of God given to us. I wonder, though, if sometimes we would like to be the one who controls the Holy Spirit. Simon has this problem. He would like to be a controller of the Holy Spirit. He saw that the Holy Spirit came as the apostles laid hands on the Samaritans. And what does he say? I want the same power. I want to have the same authority as the apostles. And he thought that he could buy this. He wanted to be in control of the Spirit rather than be controlled by the Spirit. And I wonder which it is for you. The true Christian is the one who walks in step with the Holy Spirit. They live by the Spirit. They bear the fruit of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit works so as to show you that He is in control and He has access to every area of your life. When we understand the work and the role of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, our desire is not to have more of Him so that, we can, so that way we can use Him, but instead it is that He has more of us so that He can use us for God's glory. We should be those people then who are praying that we would walk by the Spirit so that we will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Number four this morning, God's true people are gripped by God's life-changing grace. God's true people are gripped by God's life-changing grace. There are some things that money cannot buy. For everything else, there's MasterCard. That's the line from those priceless commercials, isn't it? It's almost as if we believe that sometimes. Yes, there are some things that money cannot buy, but I think the point of those commercials is, but you need money to get to those points. Or maybe if we're really honest, we'll say, well, maybe money won't buy everything, but just about everything. In fact, some people can think that money is the great fixer If you have enough money, you can buy your way out of problems. You'll have everything you could ever want or dream of. You'll be happy. You'll be satisfied. (laughs) Simon thought he could buy this gift from Peter and John. Thought that somehow he could buy the power and the authority to lay hands on people so that the Holy Spirit would fall upon them. Simon didn't really care about the Holy Spirit. Simon didn't really care about 
the people. Simon loved him some Simon. Simon wanted to have this impressive power. He wanted people to be amazed by him again. He thought that he could buy his way into this impressive spiritual status. And in fact, this action of Simon where he says, let me buy this power, actually we've created a word for that. You ever heard of this word simony? comes from Simon. Simony is this act where someone thinks that they can buy spiritual gifts or spiritual authority in the church with money. Simon's request, though, comes with a sharp, biting rebuke from Peter. What does Peter say? May you, may your silver perish with you. May your silver perish with you. It's a very strong rebuke that Peter gives, and in fact, it's basically this, to hell with you and your money, Simon. Simon, may you be damned to eternal destruction with your money. This is the gift of God. This is not a commodity to be bought and sold. It's not about man's power. It's not about man's prestige. It's not about man's impressive gifts or talents. It's not about how you are viewed in the eyes of others. It's not about man controlling God. It's not about man's dispensing of the Holy Spirit on people because, in fact, that is not man's job. Those things are not under man's control. The wind blows where it wishes, and you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. You are not in control of it. I am not in control of it. No one is in control of it but God and God alone. And for the Christian, it is all about Christ and what He does and has done and what He gives and how we are viewed in God's eyes because of what Christ, our Savior, has done, and Simon doesn't get it. And I believe that it shows that Simon is not really a Christian. Now, that is disputed by some people. But I believe that what Peter says next is the evidence that Simon was not truly saved, that he was not a part of the true people of God, but is a fake, fraudulent Christian. I say this because Peter says, you have neither part nor lot in this matter. Your heart is not right before God. Simon, you have no share in the true people of God. And what's more, you do not have a heart, a new heart, a heart that's been born again. And with a heart that's not right before God, it means that you are still in your sin. What was it that Simon needed to do? He needed to repent of the wickedness and sin that was in his life. He needed to pray to the Lord that he might be forgiven. And I think here that when Peter says this, if possible, pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. I think that shows the radical salvation that had to take place in Simon's life. We're, talking, we're not talking merely about a change of mind. We're not talking merely about 
being able to say all the right things. We're not talking about a better behavior that comes out of Simon. We're talking about a new heart that Simon needed. And there was a problem because what Peter saw, as Peter looked into Simon's heart, Peter was able to see what was still there. Simon, in your heart, there is this gall, this poison of bitterness. You're struggling with bitterness and envy because you've lost something. He had lost the position as someone great. He had lost his power over people. He had lost his prestige in their eyes. He was bitter because he had lost so much, but the problem was he hadn't gained Christ. And he was in the bond of iniquity. He, sin still had the power over him. He was still held by the clutches of sin. It ruled over him. It was sin that was calling the shots in Simon's life. It wasn't Christ. Simon had gone through many steps, so many things, but in the end, none of those meant that he was truly saved. He may have said that the gospel was true. He maybe had gotten wet with a pseudo-baptism, but in the end, the problem was Simon would not deny himself. He would not bow the knee to Jesus the King. He would not relinquish his stubborn and hard heart. Simon's life had not been gripped by God's life-changing grace. It was more about what he could get, how he could show himself to be great, rather than being a recipient of God's grace, grace that was greater than all of his sin, grace that could save him and bring him into the true people of God, grace that would give him the gift of the Holy Spirit, grace that would bring forgiveness and a release from the dominion of sin that ruled over his life. Is it this life-changing grace that's gripped your life? Is this God's grace that holds you and holds you so that now you want to proclaim Christ's greatness and not your own greatness because you know that on your own you are in no way great? I think we even see Hear a hint of Simon's heart and what he says as he responds to Peter. Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Peter, don't let anything that you've said happen to me. Peter, pray for me. I don't want anything bad to happen in my life. I don't want the consequences of sin that you are talking about. How often do I hear as a pastor, Pastor, pray for me. Pray for me. I do want to pray for you. I want to pray for you often. But here, Simon's response to Peter was just an excuse. Notice what Peter had said. Repent and you pray to the Lord, Simon. Simon was still being disobedient. It sounded nice. It sounded spiritual and pious. Pray for me, but how far from the truth was that really in Simon's life and spiritual state? If there's sin in your life, you must pray to God. 
If the intent of your heart is sinful, you must pray to God. If you have problems in your life, you must pray to God. Do not delay. I cannot fix you. I cannot fix your problems. I can't even fix my own problems. There is only one person that can do that, and you must go to him, run to him, confess and repent your sin before him, pour out your heart before him. He is the only one who can forgive. He is the only one who can save. We run to his throne of grace and mercy. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Simon, instead of being identified or instead of being arrested by a powerful message of the gospel, wanted to be powerful himself. Simon, instead of being identified with the great person, Jesus Christ, wanted to be the greatest person. Simon, instead of receiving the gift of the Spirit, wanted to be the giver of the Spirit and control God. Simon, instead of being gripped by God's grace, was gripped by the sin in his heart. He was a fake. He was fraudulent. May we be those who are the true people of God. And may we go forth telling everyone, not how great we are, not how glorious we are, not how important or impressive we are, but how great our Savior, Jesus Christ, is. Let's pray. Father, if there's someone here this morning who's heard these words about what it means to be a true Christian, and there's question, there's doubt, there's uncertainty, they're saying there's something missing, something missing in my life. Maybe there's belief that's missing. Maybe there's identity with Jesus Christ that's missing. Maybe there's joy that's missing. There's no delight in their heart. Maybe there's no spirit. No life-changing grace that's gripped them. Father, there's nothing that I can do for them today in praying for them. But may they hear these words. Repent and pray to the Lord. He will give you a new heart. We thank you that you do change lives. That you do bring about this new birth. Lord, we, we pray this morning that you might even do that work here among us. Lord, for those of us who are your true people, may we be encouraged by this word this morning. May we hear it. May we be arrested afresh by the gospel. May we see again the greatness of our Savior. May we be those who, again, have renewed commitment to walk by the Spirit.
and may we behold the great grace. And we see that great grace as we behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. We pray that you might have been glorified in your word today. And may you take your word and may you use it continually in our lives through this week, through this month, through this year. Make us more like your son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.